This episode of Just One of the Guys is dedicated to Paul Spataro, the greatest Pete Puma slash Gary Cooper impersonator out there. Oh, and he does a great Arnold Schwarzenegger as well. And welcome to another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast hosted by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Hi again, my name is Sean Ingle, and it's my job on the show to bring you coverage of the Greenlander comics, starting with the cover date June 1990 and ending with the cover date November 2004, putting a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner. This time out, again, we're dealing with two Green Lanterns, unfortunately not Guy Gardner, which is always saddening, but we're dealing with Kyle Rayner. Kyle Rayner and Hal Jordan. As you remember from last episode, hopefully if you listened to that, Hal Jordan has been brought back to the current time and is now meeting up with not only some of his friends, like he did in the last issue, but now some of his co-workers, specifically the super-powered kinds and the members of the Justice League. And they seem to take quite a liking to Hal Jordan. In fact, so much of a liking that it seems that they may have replaced Kyle with Hal which really doesn't set too well with Kyle, as he was kind of banking on him being the one Green Lantern of this time. You get to see Kyle act a little childish in this issue, but there's a really great ending for this story that I think really makes up for the fact that Kyle was acting kind of juvenile. Plus, we're also going to be covering part two of the crossover event, GL Sentinel Heart of Darkness, where we find out a little bit more about the whole Starheart thing, and what exactly the deal is with uh, Alan Scott's offspring, Jenny and Todd. Yes, they're both superpowered heroes, but are they really his children? The surprise might surprise you. Then again, it might not. It has something to do with the Starheart and weird continuity things. But it's a great issue, drawn by Paul Pelletier, whose artwork I'm loving. Also, both the books are written by Ron Mars, and he's doing a great job at characterizing the characters. I need to script these out a bit better. I need to script these out at all. But regardless, we've got two great books to cover, plus we've got some podcast promos to play, which, of course, we always have to play. And after we get right into that, we'll come back, read a few emails, and get started off with Green Lantern number 103. Stay tuned, folks.
I sense a disturbance in the Force. You always sense a disturbance in the Force. I don't like this. Really pissed me off. Star Wars Monthly Mondays, available the first Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.com. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Mike. Man, it sure is great to be back to from crisis to crisis after all this time. It's been a busy year for both of us. For very different reasons. But now we're ready to cover the post-death and return Superman stories. Yeah, and we're about to start the books that came out in 1994, which means that we have so much to look forward to, like Bizarro's World. The Battle for and Fall of Metropolis. Superman Doomsday, Hunter, Prey. Worlds Collide. Well, you're looking forward to that one. Oh, bite me. Zero hour. Zero month. And right there at the end, we have Dead Again. And don't forget, the Elseworlds annuals as well. Well, most of them, anyway. Yeah, yeah, some of those really did suck, don't they? But from Crisis to Crisis is back. New episodes will drop on Thursday, just like before. You can find the show at the Superman homepage, www.supermanhomepage.com, as well as at the Superman Podcast Network, which is at www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we also have a Facebook page that you can like by going to www.facebook.com slash from crisis to crisis a Superman podcast. Dot com. Is it dot com on there? No. No, no, it's not. No, no dot com. Forget that. <laughs> so from crisis to crisis is back, folks, and better than ever. Well, I'm better than ever. You need some work. No, shut up. No, you 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 shut up. From crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast covering the post-crisis adventures of Superman one half month at a time. Every Thursday at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailitude.com. And once again, we are back. And this time is one of my favorite times of the episode. The time that I get to take the letters that you wonderful listeners have been so polite to write into me and read on the show. You've got mail. Pattern baldness. <laughs> <laughs> And this time out, our first email comes from the Exalted One himself, His Excellency Trentus Magnus. His email is entitled Episode 100, and he starts out saying, Hey, Sean, don't really have a whole lot to add in items of feedback because I am shamefully behind on the show. Well, that's no problem. I'm shamefully horrible with you know, talking on the show, so there you go. He continues on saying, Still, I wanted to preemptively congratulate you on 100 episodes of Unprecedented Bad Assitude. That is a word now. As well as my offer of best wishes for another run of 100 amazing episodes. Well, I 
don't know if I'll get up to 100, but I'll get pretty close. I'll give you that. He says, I love your show, I love the subject matter, and I'm happy for you and for your success. Anyway, I love the show, keep up the good work, which is a strange expression, because what the hell else am I supposed to say? Stop with the good work and try shitty work for a while? Well, I, I thought about that, but you know, I, I'll just continue doing average work and hope every once in a while I get some good stuff in. Anyway, he continues, I love the show, keep up the good work. Hmm, sensing a theme in that email don't know what it is his excellency magnus is how he signs it and if you guys aren't checking out trentus magnus's show what is your problem not only is he one of the most engaging podcasters to come into podcasting in recent time but he's whip smart he's yes he is very opinionated which may turn some people off but when you realize that his opinions are pretty much on the money you'll just have to listen to his stuff and just whether or not you disagree with it or not it's always an engaging show trentus puts out a great great show and if you're not listening to it i don't know what's wrong with you plus it's also a wonderful member of the two true freaks family podcast so technically demonzo pays me well he doesn't pay me really but he makes certain that i promote all the shows that are on the two true freaks network He's got one of my kids held hostage. That'll be redacted. Anywho, uh, we've got another letter this time out, and this time it's from Scott Davis, our listener to the Great White North. Scott writes in with the title Robot World and says, Hi, Sean. Did you enjoy the Super Bowl this past weekend? Uh, as you know, this will probably come out about a month after the Super Bowl actually finished up, and it was probably, for me, one of the most boring Super Bowls I'd watched. I guess... I'm not really a fan of either of the teams. I was hoping for the Broncos to kind of win, but they just played like ass. It was horrible from from the get-go. But congratulations to the Seahawks, I'll give them that. There were some good ads in there, although I was disappointed there was no Guardians of the Galaxy advertisement, but what can you do? Scott says, I really enjoyed it because he's a, I'm a huge Seattle Seahawks fan. Well, there you go. Here are some notes on the issues I've read re recently. Green Lantern number 95, I really enjoyed this quote-unquote inventory story about Robot World. I agree that the story is a bit out of place, but I would actually like to read more stories like them. I've been getting a bit exhausted with all the heavy topics lately. Example, ex alcoholic friends, race riots, and lesbian killers. Yes, the, yeah, the topic-heavy stories were a bit much recently. Terry Austin doesn't draw a great-looking Kyle on this issue. Uh, it may be because Austin was only inking, and I thought Starlin did a good job, but maybe Austin's inking was holding it back. He, we've kind of seen that in recent issues. He looks too beefy, Scott says. The splash on pages 2 or 3 of Robot World is awesome, and the fat robot is great. Yes, why there's a fat robot is beyond me, but yeah, I guess every society needs its obese stereotypes. Good call, he says, on page 9, where Kyle ignorantly assumes that the killer could not be any of the robots because they're too well-programmed and it can never happen. Certain sarcasm here. The spaceship that looks like a vibrator is hilarious. Oh, you can call it hilarious. I'm certain other people would call it uh, enjoyable. Austin definitely drew that like it, uh, it said. Austin definitely drew it like that to be funny. Page 18 is great with Kyle standing on top of all the dead robots, waving his sword in the air. 
Ugh, the ending with the baby spiders eating their mom is disgusting. Well, it's, it's nature, so it has to happen. I thought it was strange, though, that Kyle left the fat guys by themselves to die in the end. Isn't that considered manslaughter? Eh, he's a Green Lantern, he can get away with it. He's the only Green Lantern, what are they going to do? No one cares. Green Lantern Cordy number 6, Scott says, Wow, Arisi is back and she looks great. Well, okay, I'll, I'll give you that. She looks a hell of a lot better than Power Girl. Always enjoy appearances by Arisi in these issues. The first story about Lara fighting her father was excellent, and great artwork, too. And since it's interesting to hear that it was adapted in the Emerald Knights DVD, I'll have to pick that up. Yeah, the Emerald Knights DVD was a mixed bag. Did adapt also the uh, story Mogo Doesn't Socialize, so that's kind of cool, except I can't remember whether Alan Moore, you know, I know Dave Gibbons, I think, had his name, you know, applied to the story, but I don't know if Alan Moore did, so there you are with that. The two pinups of Kat Matui on pages 21 and 22 were hilarious. The first one of Katma portraying portraying an angel is nice, but why on the opposite page they need to show her lying on top of the dead, or need to show her lying dead on the ground with a sword through her chest, and Star Sapphire on top of her with a big smile on her face. Um, did Dio got a hold of it? I don't know. The Alan Scott story was interesting. The art was great by Ballant, and he can definitely draw some amazing women, especially the three sexy scene options that Harlequin is giving to Alan on pages 26 through 27. Yeah, uh, Ballant does good pinup poses, I'll give you that. I do feel bad for the new Harlequin because she seems so confused. She's only trying to please her man. Okay. Honestly, if Alan Scott had picked Harlequin over his old wife, it probably would have made for a better story and rejuvenate his character. Well, uh, uh... I think it goes to the fact that Alan was still in love with Molly, even though he was significantly younger. Uh, sometimes, you know, youth doesn't change your emotions, I guess. Scott continues, oh well, maybe next time. The story about the Oprah Green Lantern was hilarious, and I agree it's probably one of the worst stories so far in the quarterlies. I'm still not I'm still not going to disagree. Well, I won't disagree with you, but I still think the one with the Muppet Bugs, which we kind of disagree about with, was, was worse. That's just me. On the other hand, the story of Boudicca fighting her mother on Mother's Day was excellent, and I enjoyed the part where they kicked around her grandmother's head. Ugh. The ending where the young girl asks Aresia to give her big poops just like her is inappropriate. Yes, it was, and that's why I thought this was one of the worst issues of Green Lantern Quarter. It wasn't funny the first time when Aresia gave herself an adult body. Why would it be funny now? I fully agree with you, Scott. Why were they still writing about this? Overall, it was a great issue. <sighs> okay, there I'll have to disagree with you, Scott. I don't think it was a great issue. It had some good stories. The Lara one, the one with Alan Scott was okay. The one with Boudicca and her mom, once you figured out what was going on, it was decent, but uh, it was one of the weaker ones. Still not as bad as the Muppet Bugs, though. But Scott finishes up, says, have great week, Scott. Thank you, Scott, for writing in, and thank you, Trentus, as well, for writing in. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, obviously you can listen to the end of the show and you'll get the email tag there, or I could just give it to you here. It's just one of the guys podcast at gmail.com. Write in if you'd like, and I'd always love to read your emails on the show. But that does it for the email bag. I'm going to go ahead and close that up and get into coverage of Green Lantern number 103. 
Green Lantern number 103 was cover dated in September 1998 and released on July 1st, 1998. The cover price this time out was $1.99 US and $2.85 Canada. Well, price went up in Canada, sadly. The title was Emerald Knights Part 3, Strange Bedfellows. The writer was Ron Mars. The pencilers this time were Jeff Johnson and Anthony Williams. Anchors were Bob Wyacek and Andy Lanning. Colors and separations were by Rob Schwager. The letterer was Chris Eliopoulos. The associate editor was Dana Curtin. And the editor was Kevin Dooley. Our story opens on a Reginald Barclay-esque Hal Jordan stepping out of a Watchtower teleporter. Green Lantern Kyle Rayner says that he experienced the same thing the first few times he was beamed up to our hero's base on the moon, but he should get over the dizziness soon. But his potential for technicolor yawning needs to be stifled, as Kyle introduces Hal to the Justice League. After a bit of awkward silence, Superman approaches Hal, telling him that, that despite some members' misgivings, the League is honored to have him here, noting that he was one of the original founders. As Hal has a meet-and-greet with the various members, Wally West, a.k.a. The Flash, asks Kyle about the return of his surrogate uncle. Kyle relates that this Hal isn't much older than Wally or himself, but it seems like most of the League is completely accepting of Hal being back. Well, except for one Dark Knight detective, that is. Wally asks how Kyle feels about there being another Green Lantern around, and he admits that it's an adjustment, but he's sure that the Justice League has his back. This feeling is put into question when, at the call to order of the League, Hal is offered full membership and a place to stay in the headquarters if needed. Hal graciously accepts, which rightfully irks Kyle. Adding fuel to the fire, Wally jokingly says that Kyle could stay on as maybe the equipment manager, or perhaps take the title of Kid Lantern. Not sensing the sarcasm, Kyle storms off and teleports back down to Earth. Arriving back in New York City, Kyle witnesses a police cordon of an office building. Flying down to get the skinny on what's going on, the officer tells Green Lantern that a disgruntled employee called in a bomb threat, but that they evacuated the building and didn't find a trace of explosives. Obviously, this wasn't the case, as the Noctomi Towers-level explosion goes off, sending Green Lantern leaping into action. Kyle diverts the falling rubble from the bystanders, but when a steel girder begins to fall upon a deaf wino, Kyle rings up a Paul Bunyan construct to knock the wreckage away. Unfortunately, he knocked the beam right into the window of one of the nearby police cruisers. This raises the ire of the onlooking officers, who question why the Justice League would allow someone with such a reckless attitude on their roster. Peeved, Kyle takes off for home before his brewing anger gets the better. Speaking of brewing, that's exactly what apartment mate Jenny Lynn Hayden is doing as a frustrated Kyle storms in. Jenny asks Kyle if he'd like a cup, and despite his current stress level, he gladly takes one. Unfortunately, after Jenny tells him that Simone, Kyle's ass-grabbing agent, called and says he didn't get the job, the coffee mug becomes a fluid-filled projectile aimed directly at the floor. Jenny asks about the outburst, and Kyle opens up about everything that's happened with Hal. With the League accepting him on sight, Kyle feels that he's been pushed into the background, and after all that he's done to try to carry on the tradition of Green Lantern, this is nearly the last straw. Add to that the fact that it's been months since he's heard anything from Donna, and one can see why Kyle is feeling a little blue at the moment. But Jenny says that Hal's membership is probably just an honorary one, and that at any time he needs someone to talk to, he can come to her. 
and as the two embrace, they both realize that the shared feelings are more than just friendship, and they come together in a passionate kiss. Later in bed, Kyle is awakened by a gloved hand covering his mouth. Rather than this being some kinky sex story, it's actually Batman, who's done his Batman thing and entered Kyle's apartment without anyone noticing him. The Dark Knight tells Kyle that he was the one who offered the HAL JLA membership, and Kyle realizes that it's because he still doesn't trust HAL. Kyle tells Batman that Hal is, this HAL is different, but Batman isn't willing to drop his suspicions. The Cape Crusader tells Kyle that despite the fact that he's acting like a child, the League still sees Kyle as the Green Lantern, and they trust him with their lives. Kyle is relieved, but before he can thank the Mass Marauder, he's pulled his disappearing trick and is gone from the apartment. Hearing voices, Jenny enters the room and asks what's going on. Kyle dismisses the Dark Knight's drop-in, saying that, including Jenny now being a major part of his life, he just heard what he needed to hear. We saw it last issue how Hal's friends took to him being back, and this time out we see how his quote-unquote co-workers feel about it. In general, it's all pretty positive, except for Mr. I-don't-trust-anybody Batman. But that can be expected, as the Batman of this time didn't even trust the people that he was working with on the League, much less someone who, oh, supposedly reformed after he almost tried to kill everyone in the universe and restructure it in his own way, so you gotta give the Dark Knight a little credit there. But we finally see how Kyle feels now that the JLA is being so accepting of Hal, and yes, it is a bit petty, but the scene at the end of the book reasserts that the JLA, the world, and hopefully the readership of this book should consider Kyle as THE Green Lantern. The artwork this time out is kind of a mixed bag, with Johnson's pencils looking a bit sketchy. Some of the other characters in the book look kind of simplistic or just really off in general, and the art isn't as good as the last time we saw Johnson and Wycheck in issue 101. It could be the addition of Williams and Lanning sharing the artwork, but otherwise the artwork has a sort of uneven feel to it. That out of the way, let's go ahead and get into specific notes, starting with the cover, which you would think having all these heroes on the cover, it's essentially all the members of the then-current Justice League with Hal Jordan in the center of all of them. You would think a cover like this would be really epic, but aside from Plastic Man, everyone on the cover looks like they're flying off to pick up their dry cleaning. I mean, they all look bored. They all look they don't look enthused. They don't look... They're not smiling. It's, it's just a a very humdrum cover. It doesn't... The image really doesn't sell the book. Plus, I guess there's kind of the nitpick there that Batman wasn't on the Watchtower at the time, and he's on the cover in the book. But I guess that's just nitpickery. Moving into the book, it's nice coloring on the teleporter effect as uh, Kyle and Hal beam up to the uh, JLA watchtower. It's kind of reminiscent of the Klingon transporter effect, which was 
definitely very different from the Federation transporters. It's got a sort of orangish glow to it. It's kind of cool. And the fact that Hal at this time is just kind of queasy when it happens is kind of amusing to me as well. Uh, pages two and three, we get the big opening splash of all the members of the JLA decked out. And again, this should be really awesome. But again, it's not. The characters all look just bored. I mean, everyone, you you can understand them being a little skeptical about how being there and being a bit concerned of who he is, but they don't look concerned. Like I said, they look like they they look like they're bored. It's just it's the facial expressions. The body types and the artwork by Johnson and depicting their bodies is fine, but their faces just look like they're watching an episode of the evening news. It's like I said, it's completely boring. Plus, uh, Johnson doesn't quite get the female characters right, especially Wonder Woman. Her face looks very plain, very bland. I don't know. We'll get into it a little bit more later in the issue. But then after that, even Superman looks a little wonky on page four as you get an image of looking at him from sort of underneath, looking up at him, and his nose just looks really off. It's it's disappointing because in issue 101, Johnson's artwork with there with the characters was just really great, and here it just seems kind of maybe rushed or... Maybe that Williams and Lanning are giving it a different style, but I don't know. It's just not appealing artwork to look at. And then on page five, I hate to keep complaining about that, but so does the Flash. I mean, his his head looks kind of too round, and the eye holes on his cowl just look off. I I really hate to be complaining about the art and the book so much, but I think with the story being so good, I have to sort of nitpick at the art. I think here... What is being showcased in this book is the story. It is far superior to the art in the book. And going into that story, page six, panel one, it's kind of out of continuity or it kind of messes with continuity that here on this panel, Wally says that Batman doesn't trust Hal or didn't trust Hal when we saw in issue 81 that he kind of resolved his trust with Hal and in the end came around to thinking that Hal was a hero. So it's just, again, kind of nitpicky on my part, but it fits in with the character of Batman at the time who essentially didn't trust anyone. And as we could tell later on in uh, various issues, of the JLA, that, that got him in a lot of trouble. Then moving on to page seven, panel three, we get things ramping up even more to get Kyle feeling sort of the way he does by the end of the issue. Orion, who's a new member of the JLA, directs Hal to come and sit at the JLA round table in the Green Lantern chair. Now, all the characters or all the main seven in there get their own chairs with their own symbols on it, and this is the chair where Kyle was supposed to sit. And the fact that right after that, merely just a couple of minutes later, Superman offers Hal Jordan membership in the Justice League, kind of in front of Kyle, could definitely give him the idea that maybe they want Hal here rather than him. 
Now, I agree with Jenny later in the book that that's probably not the case. It's probably just an honorary membership. But it is one of those things. If the new guy comes in and even sight unseen, the people accept him over what you've done and accept him over you, even though you, in the back of your mind, realize that that's probably not the case, it's got to gall you just a little bit. And we see that definitely here in the character of Kyle. Then on pages 8 of 9, this little thing that happened leads to Kyle's meltdown. And granted, on page 8, Wally Rila doesn't help Manners by uh, saying that he could be the Junior Lantern or Kid Lantern or Little Greenie. So it's it's Wally picking fun at Kyle, which is what you think friends do with each other. But unfortunately, Kyle just isn't in the right mindset to be able to take this as sort of, you know, friendly jabs. And uh, Kyle comes back to him, you know, saying, what what would you feel like if, you know, Max Mercury or Jay Garrick were called in to be the Flash on the JLA? And technically, as a point, I'm certain Wally'd be kind of upset as well. So, yes, Kyle is acting, well, he's acting his age, but I think he's letting it get under his skin just a bit too much. Moving on, I don't have much until about page 13, where it's after the whole explosion at the building. On this page, we see why Kyle and his incredible creativity can kind of be a burden for him. Because he rings up a uh, construct, sort of Paul Bunyan, to knock the uh, falling girder out of the way. This obviously maybe deaf or just maybe drunk out of his mind hobo here. And it knocks the girder into the windscreen of a station police cruiser here and this flows into page 14 where Kyle is trying to explain to the police officers that he was trying to save people but the police aren't the police are more focused on the devastation and destruction and I think both sides are correct yes uh, Kyle was kind of neglectful he could have done something better than just smashing the girder out of the way but the police are also being jerks as well. He did save a lot of people from an explosion that wasn't caused by him. He was being heroic. He was just kind of being a jerk about it. So, again, it doesn't really bode well for Kyle. It doesn't really show Kyle in the best of lights in this. And you've got to think, yeah, this is kind of how pretty much anyone would react in this way. I mean, granted, we're not all superhuman beings with powerful green energy weapons, but if you think you're doing something right and you're trying to do your best at it and someone says, well, why did you do that? You messed up here. It's going to gall you. So you can definitely sympathize with the way Kyle is feeling, and Ron Mars gets it across really well in the writing here. Then we get to the apartment scene, and... I think Johnson's artwork takes a little step up here, especially when he's drawing Jenny, because she looks really great. But what continues to be amazing throughout this story is Mars's writing. Uh, he does a great job with the dialogue between Kyle and Jenny. It feels really natural. And Jenny has some really salient points here where she's saying that Hal's membership is probably a honorary inclusion rather than them saying that they want him there rather than Kyle. And again, the story flows even on. I mean, this is one of the best sort of flowing thematically 
stories. That doesn't make any sense. It's one of the best stories that flows well throughout the uh, comic. And moving on to page 18, it just works so well that Jenny and Kyle, who've been, you know, friends and roomies, and yes, there's been hints of, you know, maybe Kyle should do something with her, or Kyle should take the relationship further. But again, much like what happened between Donna and Kyle, this relationship develops from a friendship and develops organically. And I think this is one of the strengths that Ron Mars has in writing these characters, that he allows these things to develop in an organic nature. He doesn't force them on you. It's You don't feel cheated when you see Jenny and Kyle kissing. You feel that that's just a natural progression in the story, and Ron Mars sells it. He sells it here. It's perfect. Page 19, however, I do have to wonder how often Batman comes into people's bedrooms at night, covers their mouth with his gloved hand, and tells them to get quiet. I also don't want to wonder what happens next. You know, yeah, think about that. It's creepy. Now, art-wise, this was one of the things I didn't like about this time. Batman, on his shoulders, has these little pointed horn things that stick up on his, not on his cowl, but on his cape. And it just, it looks wonky and weird. I never, never caught into that kind of stylistic uh, depiction of Batman, but it's part of this time period, so you have to go with it. Page 21, not only does Batman call it like it is, saying that Kyle is acting childish, which he was, he completely affirms him as the League's Green Lantern with six simple words. We trust you with our lives. And having that statement come from Batman, even more so than from Superman, I think gives Kyle that air of legitimacy. It gives him the idea that the League is behind him. Superman can say that, and you can understand that he's being truthful because Superman doesn't lie. But when you get it from the one who's completely skeptical about everyone, and he says that he trusts you, you've got to take that to heart as completely being honest. Moving on to page 22, I like how on this page you can make your own implications because Jenny comes in from the other room and asks Kyle what's going on. And you can make the, you can take the implications of whether Jenny and Kyle went any further after the kiss or whether they're just spending time in different rooms. There's a hint of implication because Jenny's wearing her shirt a little unbuttoned, but she's got her bicycle shorts on or whatever, so... It's left to your imagination, and I, I love that. I think Mars is letting the relationship, like I said, grow organically. And since he can't do it anymore with Donna, I think having Jade in there is the next best thing. But aside from a few art wonkiness at the beginning, again, this is another great issue. It's carrying on the storyline with Hal. We're going to see what happens with him. Uh, this was more a Kyle-centric episode than a Hal-centric one as of last episode. But I'm glad we're getting to see how Kyle also reacts to how being in his time period. It's a really engaging story, and I can't wait to get to the next episode so I can talk about that. But instead of talking about the next episode, I'm going to talk about, of course, what we have in this comic, 
some wonderful 90s ads. And we'll start out with the front and side cover, which is a very simplistic Coca-Cola ad that says grab in big black letters on a all red background. Then in tiny letters to the side of it, what's real, and it's always Coca-Cola. It's a very stylistic ad. Uh, doesn't really sell me on Coca-Cola, though. The next ad is, again, one that we had a few... I think we had it last episode. It was big movie. It's got the characters of the small soldiers. The uh, uh, the Joe Dante movie about basically G.I. Joes that come to life and try and kill aliens. So there you go. Then we've got the ad for General Mills cereals, uh, Honey Nut Cheerios, and Golden Grams, and uh, Cinnamon Grams. I didn't even remember they made those. Oh, well. And you could get basically one free ticket when you purchase two one-day tickets at uh, Six Flags Theme Park. So free theme park tickets to go to Six Flags. Hooray. And then you get, uh, I hate when they do these. It's it's a mad fold-in. It's fr- Fruitopia fruit drink or whatever. Some sort of watery Kool-Aid type thing. And yes, they ask you to fold point A over to point B. And it's one of those fold-in things, which is basically going to ruin your comic. So don't ruin your comics, kids. It's not a good idea. Then the next page is the uh, summer contest for the big movie, Small Soldiers. And it's got the little things, the walkie-talkies and the ink pens and all that stuff. So, yeah, we covered that last time. Then one of the house ads is for Legends of the DC Universe, uh, 80-page giant number one, which has uh, stories about Hawkman, the Spectre, the Teen Titans, Doctor Strange, Kronos, the Doom Patrol, Rip Hunter, and the Linear Men, and a newly painted cover by legendary artist Joe Kubert. It doesn't really give any of the people who do the stories inside, but... uh, Looks pretty neat. Hawkman looks pretty badass. He's very muscular. Very, very muscly. So, there you go. And uh, it's followed by another house ad that just actually isn't that good. It's for Batman Other Realms. Beyond the Towers of Gotham City, Beyond the Here and Now. I guess this is a sort of time-traveling thing where a Batman is killing demons with an axe and there's... Another Batman there as well. I don't get it. It's by uh, Mark Neese and Bo Hampton with uh, art by uh, Bo and Scott Hampton. So if you're interested in Batman hacking up demons, well, this is probably the story for you. The DC Watch the Space uh, column uh, deals with Heroes Convention that went on in Charlotte, I guess, North Carolina. So Luke Giaconetti at the time probably could have made it there. Well, maybe not. Maybe he was a bit young, but you never know. I'll ask him about that. The uh, next advertisement is for a Helix comic, which is has a couple of people running from a bunch of giant robots as a big floaty Jesus character flies behind them. I don't know. It's for a comic called The Dome, Ground Zero. And as I've never really read any of the Helix line, I couldn't tell you one thing about this comic. At the bottom of the letters column, there's an advertisement for the uh, new Martian Manhunter series beginning in August, and uh, this was the one... Who was this written by? 
I guess uh, it was John Ostrander and art by Tom Mandrake. Thank you, uh, Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, for that information. The back inside cover is that weird alien ad that we did last time for the uh, JNCO shoes. Uh, I don't know. I'm not hip enough to know what kind of shoes cool kids wear. So there you go. But the back inside, the back outside cover is uh, it's a really nice one, but uh, kind of creepy. It's an ad for milk, and if you remember these ads for milk, they had various athletes or actors or actresses with uh, milk mustaches, and this one's kind of creepy. It's got Sarah Michelle Gellar, and uh, well, you can tell she's kind of in a bustier or something that's pushing up her ample bosoms, and she's wearing a trench coat, and she's obviously supposed to be the uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer character, and she's silhouetted in this sort of grayed-out photo image with a milk mustache. It's, uh, if taken out of context, it could be incredibly awkward. I'll just leave it to your folks' imagination. But milk, I guess it does a body good, and in more ways than one. So... Sarah Michelle Geller, milk mustache. I'm going to try and not look at that anymore. But that ends our coverage of Green Lantern number 103. I'm going to take a break here, plug some promos in, as I always do. And when I get back, I'm going to be covering the Sarah Michelle Geller free book, Green Lantern, Sentinel, Heart of Darkness, number two. Holy nightmare. So we all know who Robin is, right? Short pants, bad, holy insert object gear jokes, kind of weird relationship with an older man who dresses like a bat. I know, right? So not what Batman needs. Thing is, if that's your impression of Robin, then you don't know Robin. I'm Tom Panneries, and for most of my comic collecting career, I've been a Teen Titans fan. Moreover, I've been a huge fan of Robin and Nightwing. So I've decided to take a look at those who have worn the costume in a podcast miniseries called Taking Flight. Taking Flight focuses on the life and career of Dick Grayson as he evolved from Boy Wonder to Nightwing. I'll take a look at his origin story, his time with the Teen Titans, and his evolution into Nightwing. Along the way, I'll also look at Jason Todd and Tim Drake, stopping right after Zero Hour when Dick left the Titans behind. Episodes will come out just about every week at takingflight.podomatic.com, and you can find show notes at popcultureaffidavit.com. Join me as I take a look at Comic Dumb's most famous sidekick, who is a vital part of Batman's mythos. Okay, Bill, are we ready? Sure, Paul. Oh, wait, be right back. I need my Avengers omnibus. Uh, where did I put that thing? While Bill looks for that, let me tell you about our new endeavor. Two True Freaks has grown, and Back to the Bins is growing with it. I, Paul Spataro, along with Bill Robinson and Scott Gardner... Just say his name three times in an email, and he'll appear in your show. Hey, how's it going? Ah! Sorry, sorry, I forgot I had a Scott Gardner life model decoy in here. Be right there. Ow! Ow, who put Cap Shield there? <laughs> anyway, we're looking to showcase various characters, storylines, issues... Or whatever strikes our fancy from the world of the Avengers. Hey, Ben, move that funny-looking hammer, would you? It's it's on that book, and I can't move it. Sure thing, Dad. Where do you want it? Uh, 
over there somewhere. No, no! watch out for the repulsor. No! Oh! Ah! Don't tell your mother. We like to call it Avengers Spotlight. I thought it was going to be called Old Avengers Never Die. They just get reassembled and sent to another Earth. What? Too wordy? Who knows what we'll cover and who might stop by. So join us for the Avengers Spotlight, where we'll look at Earth's greatest heroes and some of comics' greatest stories, such as the Korvac Saga, Acts of Vengeance, the Kree Skrull War, and, oh, for the love of Christ, who the hell put the Celestial Madonna Saga on this list? Huh. I found a use for that life model decoy after all. Okay, found it. We ready? <sighs> hey, wait a minute. This is the Book of the Vashanti. Forget it. See you soon, everybody. My favorite Avengers are D-Man and Green Lantern. Say goodnight, Scott. Goodnight, Scott. And we're back. And what you heard there was an advertisement for The Avengers Spotlight, a show done by Scott Gardner, Bill Robinson, but mainly Paul Spataro. Yes, Paul Spataro the man who essentially runs the Two True Freaks ancillary shows. Back to the bins, and Avengers Spotlight would never be done quite properly and quite well without the gentle, nurturing encouragement of the great podcaster Mr. Paul Spataro. There aren't enough words in the English language to effectively convey the idea of how helpful, how wonderful, and how simply amazing Mr. Paul Spataro is. Thanks for listening to the show, Paul. I hope this makes up for the fact that I dissed your Schwarzenegger voice. I still enjoy it, though. One of the other things that I do enjoy, of course, is Green Lantern. And the story in Green Lantern's Sentinel Heart of Darkness is definitely one of those ones that I'm going to cover. Green Lantern and Sentinel Heart of Darkness number 2 was cover dated April 1998 and released on February 18, 1998. It had a cover price of $1.95 U.S. and $2.75 Canada. It was entitled, Like Father, Like Son. The writer again was Ron Mars, penciler was Paul Pelletier, anchor was Dan Davis, letterer Chris Eliopoulos, colorist Jason Wright, associate editor Dana Curtin, and editor Kevin Dooley. Fortunately for Alan Scott and Kyle Rayner, Alan's son Todd and his guise of Obsidian has released them from the mind control of a deranged villain named Brainwave Jr. Unfortunately, Obsidian is likely to kill the mental manipulator unless his father can calm him down. Alan tries to reason with Todd, but that just leads him to lashing out at his father. Kyle intervenes with a ring construct cage, but Alan tells Kyle to let him go so that he can try and talk some sense into his son. However, Todd is filled with an unnatural amount of rage, not only for the abduction of his sister, but also for his father seemingly taking better care of Brainwave Jr. than Jenny. The commotion causes Dr. Quinn and her orderlies to rush into the room where Alan tries to explain away all the costume heroes. The orderlies take away a babbling Brainwave, and Kyle asks Todd just what he thinks happened to Jenny. Todd mentions that she is becoming, and her father will take care of her. Kyle shrugs off the uh, kooky comment and tries to talk about some of the commonalities that he and Todd have, but the small talk is cut short as Todd attacks Kyle with more of his inky energy. 
Intervening, Alan hustles Dr. Quinn out of the room and engages his son in some giant tiger construct fighting McFeinstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, leading to the relatives crashing through the wall of the sanitarium. Alan and Kyle try and subdue Todd, but his ramblings become more and more crazy pants. Alan wonders if even he can take down his own son. Alan tries again to reason with Todd, but Todd proclaims that he is not his father. His true father has shown him his destiny. And with that, Obsidian engulfs our heroes in his dark energy, knocking them unconscious. Some time has passed, and our heroes awaken to see Obsidian standing on a floating rock in the middle of a Hieronymus Bosch-style hellish landscape. Cal asks where exactly they are, and the answer comes from an emerald version of the Silver Surfer, who calls himself the Starheart. Our villain taunts our heroes as he clutches a captive Jenny in his hand while holding Alan's battery in the other. Alan prepares to attack, but the Starheart tosses a giant floating boulder at him. Kyle also takes aim at the baddie, but he too is taken out by the ground rising up to engulf him. Jenny breaks free and runs to her father and Rumi to ensure that they're alright, and after confirming their safety, Kyle asks Alan for an explanation. Alan relates that the Starheart was a collection of random magic energy that the ancient guardians imprisoned millions of years ago. He also tells of how his power battery was a portion of the Starheart, and the battle that occurred between the two that led to his renewed youthfulness. But with backstory taken care of, Alan asks exactly what all of this has to do with his children. Menacingly, the Starheart says that Todd and Jade aren't Alan's offspring. They are his. Alan distrusts the dialogue dispensed by the Emerald Entity, but the Starheart says that both Todd and Jenny will eventually return their powers to him. Alan says that he won't let the magical menace torment his children anymore, and in exchange he offers up his part of the Starheart energy for the release of, the, of his daughter. Jenny screams for her father to stop, but it's too late, as Alan Scott, now returned to his elderly self, collapses to the ground frantically clutching at his chest. Unlike the first book, this chapter focuses a lot more on Alan Scott and has a lot of tie-ins to the Greenland and Quarterly books, which, ironically enough, I just finished coverage of on episode 100 of the show. The art by Pelletier is great, as always, and however, the story isn't as good as the first chapter. I guess just the idea of the Starheart just doesn't really interest me that much. It was one of the parts of the Greenland and Core Quarterly stories that... I just really couldn't get into. I was more interested in Alan Scott and Molly having their sort of, you know, old age adventures in the uh, DC universe. I wasn't all into the uh, new revamped young Alan Scott and what he was doing, but eh, it's part of the history. It's part of the continuity and you've got to take it for what it is. But going into notes, this cover, 
I think it's better than the first cover with Kyle on it. I think Alan looks really good. The shading with everything and the coloring, uh, well, especially the shading on Alan's chest looks really good. I don't know whether it's Pelletier or Davis doing it, but he still has kind of weak ankles, especially his left one. But uh, I think it's a better cover. I think I will, again, reserve judgment because I took a look at the uh, third cover, and I may have some really exciting things to say about that one. But so far, this one is actually better than the first cover, so I'll give him that. Pages 2 and 3, we pick up where we left off in the last issue, with the addition of Brainwave Jr. being a bit more talkative this time out. He's kind of mumbling about the chaos in him. We're At this point, we're not really certain if he's talking about Obsidian or talking about himself, or talking about someone else, but he's doing a lot more insane rambling, which fits in with the sort of creepy, uh, the cell-type vibe that I'm getting from this. Throughout the book, the artwork's really good, but I really don't have any notes till page 6, panels 1 and 2, where, again, we see more ranting of Brainwave Jr., this time talking about something behind Todd's eyes. So you kind of get the idea that there's something going on with Todd that's more than just him being sort of dark and maleficent, I guess. Then on panel three of this same page, we kind of get a, a statement from Todd that really cements the fact that he's perhaps a bit darker than we've actually known him. He says, I should have killed you when I had the chance. Now, I haven't read too much of the Infinity Incorporated storyline, so I don't know what Todd and Brainwave Jr.'s relationship was, but I'm getting here that it probably wasn't a very good one, and I'm thinking Todd probably wishes he took advantage of the situation that came up in Infinity Incorporated to deal with Brainwave Jr. then, rather than have to deal with him now. Page 8, we get Kyle and Todd kind of talking to each other, and Kyle trying to sort of relate with Todd and start up a conversation with him so we can kind of interact with him. And you would think that Kyle is being a bit clueless on this page, but it works within the narrative of the story. Kyle trying to say that he didn't know his father and Todd didn't know his father and trying to relate with him in some way to kind of get him to calm down from the very dark place that he's in. But unfortunately it really doesn't work for Kyle because the way Todd is speaking, it sounds like he's speaking in the third person or He's possessed by someone, so it's a really creepy vibe that the book is putting forth here. Page 10. In general in comics, I would complain about when a hero decides to break through a wall of a building, like I so fervently did in Green Lantern number 100, where Hal drilled through the side of the Guardian Citadel. But here, where Alan breaks through the wall of this building... I guess it's on his dime because, well, he was paying for the place, so yeah, I guess if he wants to bust it up, he can. Then moving on to page 11, I know they're trying in the artwork to distinguish between Alan's and Kyle's ring constructs, and they do a good job of it when they put the sort of flaming um, energy around Alan's constructs, but here they're kind of messing it up because... Kyle's constructs look a bit too realistic. They have kind of a green hue to them, or like, I guess the best way that I could describe them is if you remember in the late 90s, 
the sort of matrix look where everything that's had that sort of green hue to it. That's what Kyle's constructs look like. And it looks like they're just actual figures rather than constructs with uh, just that green hue around them. And it doesn't really work for, doesn't really work with the idea of Kyle creating these constructs. It looks more like an actual entity there, especially here on this page. You've got the shield, which looks kind of like a brown shield. And then Kyle creates a ring construct, kind of avenging angel. And it just looks like an avenging angel with the matrix hue on it. So, uh, it wasn't really a good art choice here, at least in my opinion. But I guess on the next page, page 12, the same things can kind of be said for Alan's constructs, except we've got the sort of flame signatures coming off of them because they look not just one simple color green. The knight in shining armor or the knight in armor riding on the horse looks distinctly colored. In fact, the horse looks like it's sort of gray and its mane is darker black, so... Yeah, it's. I don't know whether the colorist took on the idea that these should just be constructs and should just be one sort of green color, maybe different shades of green, but it looks off to me. Pages 14 and 15 get another wonderfully rendered, trippy, just, like I said, Hieronymus Bosch type feel of an image where Obsidian is standing there with his arms out and his cape flowing, just all these weird things from playing card steps to a sort of Star Wars-like chess game going on, eyeballs in the background, some giant worm thing with huge teeth. It's it's all very surreal and all very creepy, and it sets the vibe for a very surreal, mystical realm. Um kind of Ditko-esque, but a bit more dark. In fact, I'm looking back here, there's also uh, an image of the Ankh back here as well, so, you know, a little relationship to Dr. Fate's sort of magic realm as well, so kind of neat. Page 16, I don't really want to nitpick about this, because the artwork here is really good, both the Starheart, who looks very Silver Surfer-ish, just green instead of silver, is fine, and Jade looks great as well, it's just kind of nitpicky. When she was abducted in issue 97, yeah, I think it was 97, no, it was 96, the one where they were doing the Three of a Kind storyline, Jenny was in a pink top and sort of beige gym shorts or whatever you want to, well, gym pants, the sort of tight legging type things. Now her top is sort of a grayish blue and her pants are kind of purple. So it's just kind of a nitpicky thing. I think they could have easily done that, but I think they wanted to go for this muted color scheme here to make it look a lot darker. So it's just continuity things, but it's it's not anything out of the ordinary. Page 18, panel 4. Here you can see a little bit of the relationship that came up in Green Lantern number 103, you can see it sort of start here as Jenny's trying to comfort Kyle as Alan's going to take on the Starheart. And it's a it's a nice little touching, compassionate panel with not any innuendos of or any sexual overtones to it, just two friends who care about each other and are in a difficult situation dealing with what's going on. So 
I like that it's, again, that Mars is building this stuff up organically. That's one thing that I think throughout his run on this comic he's been able to do well is build the relationships between Kyle and his various girlfriends without having them feel forced. But then my final note moves on to the end at page 22, which I guess is a good cliffhanger ending with Alan giving his power back to the Starheart and now becoming really old. But the thing was, before he got his power from the Starheart, he wasn't this old. I mean, he's nearly bald. He's got quite a widow's peak. Obviously, he's having chest pains here, so... Did the Starheart prematurely age him? Is this continuity problems? What is this? But it does set up a nice cliffhanger ending, and it does definitely make you want to come and read the final chapter of this book. So, mission accomplished here. A decent story. Again, Alan the Starheart, not my cup of tea, but I like the way the story is working as a whole, and I like how each chapter seems to be dealing with each of the three characters. The first one dealing with Kyle, this one dealing with Alan, and I'm going to assume the next one's going to be dealing with Jade. And we're going to be covering that next week as we cover, finish up our coverage of Heart of Darkness number three, where we find out what Jade's going to do to save her father, save Kyle, and hopefully save her brother Todd. Plus, next time out, we get another crossover event between Green Arrow and Green Lantern. However, this time, the Green Lantern is Hal Jordan, with the Green Arrow still being Connor Hawk. It's a crossover called Greener Pastures, where Green Arrow and Green Lantern go up against a green terrorist group called the New Eden Corps. Somehow, they're related to the death of Oliver Queen, which, unfortunately, Hal Jordan doesn't really know about yet. It's more of Hal Jordan trying to fit in in the modern day, dealing with the death of friends and family, and, well, there's Eddie Fires in it as well, which I'm looking forward to. So next week, a trio of comics with Green Arrow number 136, Green Lantern number 104, and Heart of Darkness number 3. I can't wait to get to it. I hope you guys can't wait, but unfortunately you're going to have to seven more days. But it'll be a short seven days. We'll be back here next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys. Until then, take care, everyone. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast, or search for Two True Freaks, the numeral two, and you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook, and now you can actually find me there as it was a requirement of my new Demonsicore contract. 
but it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Wars group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. The opening music for today's show was Billy Joel and his song, The Stranger, oddly enough, from his album entitled The Stranger. If you'd like to pick up this album or pick up this song, the best place to go to do that, of course, would be 2TrueFreaks.com. Not because 2TrueFreaks sells albums or MP3s, but because 2TrueFreaks has a link to Amazon.com, the best place to pick up albums, CDs, DVDs, video games, electronics, books, toys, whatever anyone could want, and all at discounted prices. And whenever you go to 2TrueFreaks.com and click on the Amazon link in the upper left-hand corner, and you buy something from Amazon.com, whether it be a Billy Joel song or whatever, a little bit of the money from your purchase goes back to 2TrueFreaks to help with the cost of running the website. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps us out. So, if you ever feel like buying anything especially anything from Amazon.com, make sure you use the link at 2